Hello and welcome to episode numero uno. I am that excited that you could be here. Well, not actually here, but you know what I mean. I hope you are having a kick-ass day wherever you are in the world. I'm Veronica McAvey, the editor and founder of Moss Magazine, and this is our brand new podcast where we will be interviewing a bunch of inspiring designers who have sustainable and or ethical brands, as well as a ton of other people involved in creating sustainable garments, fabrics, or actively participating in changing how we will inevitably continue to be involved with fashion. I'll also be updating you with sustainable fashion news going down in the world that might not have come across your radar as well as enlightening you with some waste-free existence tips that I'm trialing out myself so that you can get a real perspective on how easy enough it could be to incorporate them into your busy lives. Look, I'm really going to try and launch each episode on Saturdays, but I'm a one-woman show so far in terms of the podcast. And as you know, we're launching a brand new magazine and getting it off the ground has been pretty hectic. So if I don't get it out each Saturday, don't get grumbly and please keep listening. But for the sake of being consistent and prompt, let's go with Saturday being our weekly release date. So today, I am delivering straight to your gorgeous ears an interview I had with Jay Sarita Arnott, the designer and founder of the label Arnstorf, a sustainable and transparent brand operating out of Melbourne, Australia. Jade brings a fresh new means of creating garments that are ethically produced and part of a sustainable supply chain. Whilst creating her collections, Jade considers the fabric, her workers, oversupply and waste as well as the longevity of the garments and creating timeless pieces that can be cherished over and over for years to come. Jade took the time to speak with me just before being announced as the winner of the Australia's National Design Sustainability Award. We were seriously gunning for Jade as she so, so deserved this accolade. She picked it up for the brand excelling in areas of sustainable practices, ethical manufacture and use of recycled products and impact of workers. We conducted this interview at her Collingwood studio where all of her fabrics are cut, the garments are constructed and created. So if you hear beeps and background noise, it's actually the music of the magic unfolding. The studio is also open to her customers to come in and get their clothes altered and mended, which is a free service she offers to her clientele to promote the item being tailored to your shape, but also to ensure that the garment can be continued to, to be worn rather than being discarded if it is broken. Jade and I chatted about the necessity of designing pieces that are versatile and timeless, not necessarily following into trends what kind of different sales system brands can employ that vary from the typical wholesale model, the importance of keeping a database to keep track of successful styles that sell well to eliminate future waste, how making in small batches benefit the business and the sustainable elements that she has been mindful to carry across in the operations of her business, as well as how she closed her label and reopened it with a fresh lease on creating quality garments from sustainable fabrics made ethically and with the promise of offering her customers a truly unique buying experience. We also touched on pesticide use and the devastating effects that it has on cotton farmers, but I thought I'd include some harsh but useful facts regarding pesticides so that you have a deeper understanding, if you hadn't already, which I'm sure you do because you're a very knowledgeable bunch. The pesticides and fertilizer that are used most frequently contain nitrogen. Interestingly, and also scarily, during the war, nitrogen was one of the prime components of TNT and other high explosives, and the US government built 10 new plants to supply nitrogen for bombs. 
After the war, those same plants produced ammonia for fertilizers. The problem with growing cotton and using pesticides is that cotton grows in regions. So if one field decides to spray the pesticides, it affects the growth in the soil on a molecular level of the other produce in the area, including crops, for example. The cotton farming industry is highly political, as outlined in the True Cost documentary. Quite frequently, the people selling the seeds are also the pesticide and fertilizer producers, as well as the company making the medicine to cure the cancers arising with a direct correlation to the pesticide, pesticides being used. They can also control the livelihood of the farmer depending on the selling price of the seed. Often the farmer is already in debt when purchasing the seed alone. The other side to the problem is that the more pesticides are being used, the more you need to use them. The yield might go up in the short term, but inevitably it will drop because the soil is then contaminated. In the Punjab region, which is the largest growing region in, of cotton in India, their use of pesticides has had an abhorrent effect on the villages, with many contracting liver cancer and 60% of children being born mentally retarded or with physical defects. The last fact, and not so well known fact, is that one farmer commits suicide every 30 minutes in the world. That's 3,000 farmer suicides a year in India alone. A large contributor of this is the growing pressure of making repayments as the threat of their land and livelihood is being taken away or is constantly looming. So, although those facts are bleak, they really put into perspective the vicious cycle of pesticide use and the importance of demanding that cotton is grown organically and sustainably, not just for our own benefit, but the, for the farmers and their families and the villagers' benefit too. On that note, let's buckle up interview with Jade. I just wanted to thank you so much for letting me interview you. Um, you are true inspiration in for sustainable fashion and I wanted to thank you for being on the show. Um, I think your designs are brilliant, they're timeless, they're really feminine, they're bold, they're strong and I just want to thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, and thanks again for being on our show. Oh, thanks for having me. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> so I just wanted to start our segment off and it's called the Narcissist Grill. Um, it's all a few okay. personal <laughs> questions about you. Um, and it's called a narcissist because, well, not voluntarily talking about yourself. I'm forcing you to. <laughs> um, so uh, it just gives the listeners a bit of an insight into who you are. Um, what is one sustainable fact that you learned that changed your psyche or inspired you to be a bit more sustainable in your life? Okay, I think um, learning about pesticide use and the, the uh, devastation that pesticides have on farmers and people that are working with the crops really sort of shocked me into you know action in terms of organic fibres. Yeah. Um, yeah, just the fact that in third world countries that children are dying, adults are dying through just toxic chemical exposure really yeah. was quite Absolutely. an awakening yeah. to me. So. Even the diseases that they're contracting. What is one thing you're reading or watching or listening to at the moment? At the moment, I am reading Claire Press's um, Rise and Resist. Yes, story. Are you? I'm rereading oh, that's it. Great. It's so yeah, good. it's fantastic. Amazing. So yeah, that's been really great. I'm watching a show called The Romanoffs. Have okay. you seen that? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw a brief preview. It's great. 
Yeah, that's great. You recommend it? Okay. Yeah, I recommend that. Good. Um, binge watching. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like almost a little. Each one is like a little film. It's a different cast. Oh, in each I like that segment. Yeah, so, but they're all related. Okay, I'm keeping yeah. interested. Okay, it's I like good. That. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, that's good. Awesome. <laughs> do you listen to podcasts? I do. Yeah. 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 I. I I was really into, I was really into um, Unstyle. Yeah, Refinery Twenty Nine's podcast with Christine Barbridge. That's awesome. I, I also really like that. Um, I think it's called How I Built This. It's kind of like um, different business owners and oh, things. Okay. Usually, creative businesses oh, of good. like okay. how That's they right started out and like <laughs> what. Um, yeah. What. What their journey has been. Yeah, true. Things. So that's quite, I found that quite interesting. Oh, cool. You might be interviewed for that soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How would you define yourself as a consumer? I think I'm a conscious consumer. Um, I like to buy things that are, you know, quality over quantity. So I'm quite mindful when I make a purchase. Um, I mean, I don't buy a lot of fashion because I make, make fashion so yeah, absolutely it's sort of like a different way of consuming that um i recently purchased a, a juicer that was like a big <laughs> purchase oh, awesome. for me. It's really good yeah. cold press juicer which i did a lot of research over um and i had my had had my old one for 20 years and i was like no i'm gonna buy like a top of the range one yeah, because absolutely. i'm gonna have this for like the rest of my life so invest in you know the quality Especially because so many white goods are made for like a one-year lifespan now, which is appalling that you have to use it and just throw it away. So it does pay to invest sometimes. Yeah. I guess same with fashion. You pay a little bit more and you get something that you can use forever or for at least 20 years. That was a good stint. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is one sustainable habit that you have that packs a punch? I think it's very simple, but just having a keep cup and taking it to the cafe if I'm getting it drink and yeah you know, absolutely. just saving all those um coffee cups or i know it gives me anxiety when i see <laughs> them everywhere i have the same rule that i just i just don't drink unless i have it there. Mm. so if i don't bring it then i have to sit down and sit there mindfully and drink yeah it. it's kind of it's a good to <laughs> slow down anyway it's really? <laughs> something i rarely do <laughs> um awesome and what is a What's at the top of your bucket list at the moment? Oh, my bucket list. I am going to... I've just booked a trip to Greece in the oh, middle of the year with my little family. So, so I'm very excited about that. Wow. Yeah. Are you going to so, Santorini? Or? We haven't really booked the details. Yeah. So, just um, a bit of a free, free plan. Yeah. Great. Some islands and maybe yeah. a bit more of Europe as well. So. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, really oh, that time looking of the year as that. well. The yeah. Oh, so good. Well, I hope you had the best time. Thank you. Check out the sunsets in Eos. They're yeah. really beautiful. Get, get some tips from you after the show. Yes. <laughs> um, what sustainable or ethically minded brands are you digging at the moment? I'm really excited about um, packaging brands that are sustainable, sustainable yes. at the moment. So we've been trialling a few different um, packages, packaging yes. and bags so yep. we've we're using this company called the better packaging okay Co. awesome yeah um so they make these satchels 
which are compostable and they're made out of cornstarch. So good. Which is really amazing. So good. Um, and then we're also looking, like traditionally we've been using like a recycled cardboard box. Yeah. But we feel like we just want to improve on that in terms of just, you know, if it's a small item, a t-shirt or something, you don't need a big box yeah, of for course, it to come into. Yeah, of course. So just, just reducing space. Yeah, definitely. You know, space and need to recycle. No. And then with our our bags we've just been we've just I've just designed this this tote which we'll manufacture in-house which has sort of I love a this tote <laughs> bow it's kind of like a little bit more than a, a regular tote yes. um, and then we're looking into this other brand that makes they look like plastic bags but they're made of um, cassavary I think that's how you said yeah root so oh, cool. yeah it's a bit like a um, like a sweet potato starch yeah it's a similar type of that's amazing plan. so yeah okay. we're looking into that so I'm yeah I, I'm really excited by just this innovation that's happening through all different industries and Me you know too. technology that can help yeah this absolutely. journey of sustainability absolutely it's so good I actually got some um, cornstarch bin liners yesterday oh, which nice. I found because I've been trying to find them and they weren't easy to locate I just wanted to eradicate plastic at all costs <laughs> but that's so cool yeah I saw um, a packaging company as well called repack and they okay. like have um you buy you buy something and it comes in the bag and then you put the bag back into the mail and it goes back to the original company so it's just a cycle the bag never dies wow so people just have a excuse to put it back into the That's mail great. yeah and so it's just that and i think it's compostable as well in the long run as okay. well it's not made of plastic but that way it just keeps going mm. so you don't have to keep holding that waste as well but yeah i love the idea of what they're doing it's so good so the next segment is called where it all began okay and i just wanted to have a bit of a perspective on the start of ironsdorf and your ideas um and you <laughs> So, did you always want to be a designer, um, or what was the catalyst for you to decide to start a clothing label? Okay. Um, growing up, I was always interested in creative pursuits. I was always sort of drawing or making things. Yes. Um, so I always had sort of a broad sense of that. My parents met at art school, so my oh. dad was a photographer, my mother was a painter, and so yeah, it was just something that was sort of just yeah, part of our life. life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what a creative house to have grown up in. Yeah, it was good. Gorgeous. But I suppose my both my parents worked other jobs to support their practice, so yeah. it wasn't something that was, um, you Whole, know, wholeheartedly that yeah, able to do full time. And I think seeing that, I, you know, I was really interested in the arts, but I also wanted something that was quite practical and that could. I suppose be more commercial and yeah you know, absolutely working to be really useful day-to-day -day things for definitely people. Yeah, um so I think yeah that was sort of always in the back of my mind I think growing up as a teenager I you know it had been on my list of wanting to be a designer and then yeah perhaps I it sort of fell away and I was focusing on other things um after high school I studied creative arts at VCA it's yeah. kind of the fourth school um that that sort of encompassed all the different disciplines of the, of the school you could choose subjects from. So filmmaking, creative writing, sculpture, art history, um, performance. So that was sort of a really good grounding course to see which direction yeah. I would, you know, I could dabble in all these different disciplines. Absolutely. Um, and then at the same time, I, was, I sort of had an accessory branch 
that was supporting me through uni so I would make make things and I, I really liked that idea of making things really? that I could sell rather than working you know at, definitely um, that I, I was you know excited about just seeing producing things and things that would make people feel good about themselves or so um, well, that makes so much sense because yeah. you have such a broad spectrum of artistic skills and you know some of your pieces are so structural in, in their element as well so I can see all that history of your artistic skills just being implemented and yeah. you continue to evolve so it's so cool so after that I sort of finished that degree and then I decided I sort of yeah had the idea that I wanted to have my own fashion brand yeah. sort of came to me and then I decided to do the RMIT fashion degree yeah. um, to gain the skills. I to, went there too. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to gain those skills um, that would help me to do that. So I guess it was always the plan to have my own brand when I, I sort of went to university to get the skills to do that. And then I finished and just started the brand. I, I did Nice, which was like yes. a, um, yep. a year sort of business course and mentorship. So government um, supported so that sort of helped finance the brand at the start and so I launched in 2006 um, we were lucky to be sort of picked up by a really great store at the time called Marais my dream store to get into a very high-end yeah, international absolutely. designer um, and, and you had then, quite a few celebrities wear your pieces straight yeah, off the bat as well so it was nice traction. to have that sort of um, response okay. support and then I guess, yeah, just each, I went down the traditional route of a young designer of um, wholesaling, doing, eventually doing fashion shows at Fashion Week yep. each time, um, making, outsourcing to other factories that were around Melbourne. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and how did you find that as an emerging designer that just thrust into that deep fast-paced world of just trying to keep up did you find that a bit overwhelming or did you yeah find I think solid it, I think it, it was tricky especially at the start when you're doing every single piece on your own and yes. sort of like just doing every job as well as the designing the production um but but yeah it was fun and you know yeah worked hard. it was so <laughs> a good cool. journey um, met no, interesting people along the way. And then in 2010, I decided to relocate to New York. So awesome. my boyfriend at the time, now husband, hey. and I both had our own businesses based in Melbourne, but yep. we were looking to expand to the US. Great. And also just wanted to experience living in another country yeah. and sort of being closer to another creative hub yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely so that was really great that was a really exciting time um, so I worked I sort of I still had an office here I had a really wonderful sales manager Kat who kept an office in Melbourne and she would handle all the wholesaling and sort yes. of almost the managing director of the business here mm. and then I moved the studio the design studio to New York um, shared the office shared a studio with some other designers oh, Loden Dargo and a few others yeah and that would have um, made it feel less lonely relocating yeah. and still being with creative people so I guess it was yes almost starting from scratch again having to um, start new relationships with factories over there and um, you know fabric 
agents and all of that. So, yeah, and then I was process. still showing at Australian Fashion Week, so I'd sort of get all the collection ready, yeah. take it back on the plane, wow, go straight to show. So, yeah, it, it, was, <laughs> <laughs> it was busy, but yeah, it, was, it was good. And then, yeah, just sort of, it started to, it was a bit, a bit of a strange time in retail. A lot of, it was a downturn in the economy in Australia and a lot of the stores, the sort of premium boutiques I was stocking to closed down or... Um, Went into voluntary administration, yeah. reshuffled, didn't pay designers, and reopened again. So Gosh. it was sort of this, we, yeah, financially, financial we took a bit of a hit. Yeah, so that made it a bit difficult. And yeah, I just felt like each season, I just felt this sort of growing unease of, of not being totally over, yeah. being in control, control of like the supply chain and having outsourced we had you know I had these great relationships with the managers of the factories but it, you know there was always this divide between me and the actual machinist and yeah knowing whether Not they knowing had personally the right pay and were working the right hours with benefits and yeah exactly. so you know I always just felt a bit uneasy about that and then it got to a point where I just it just felt like I still loved design and you know all of that but I it just felt like the industry didn't make sense to me anymore. It was. All, it also coincided when I had my first child. Yeah. So it was a time priorities of are priorities and reflection. Mm. And at that time, I was in New York, just a one-woman show. So I was sort of doing it all. Yeah. Exactly. So and it your was. First child, it yeah, it was so a lot to time. So I just decided to take a season off to press pause, just yeah. reevaluate if this was really fulfilling me, and if I was contributing you know to the world in a positive way yeah absolutely um yeah I decided to take a bit of a break and it sort of turned into a a longer longer break (laughs) well those developmental years are pivotal yeah and I just there was yeah it was just the time of my my life that I wanted to focus on being with my son and just needed a bit of balance you know I'd been working just constantly for years and years and it was nice to just sort of step back yeah, and assess and things from afar. That and, so, you know, that, that's the you know, dichotomy that a lot of women face mm-hmm. as well. Like they just can't be there for everything and that splitting yourself into different parts yeah. just doesn't work sometimes. It doesn't Especially happen. when you're and when it's a small brand and you're working you're sort of yeah, the whole brand. You, you don't have, the, you can't really take maternity No, no. Something. But um Yeah, so so that was also just a time of Having stepped back, I felt this sense of a relief at the start and I was looking at... I was also frustrated about the way that the fashion cycle operates and just the the, the way that, it, you know, every couple of months there's sales and things are marked down and everything loses its value yeah. and um, just the wastage involved in, in that process it's about absurd. overproducing so that you factor in the markdown... You know, I know. I read. That, I read so. somewhere recently that um, Burberry wasn't happy with one particular item that they produced, and so they just burned, they burned it. it. Yeah, they incinerated everything. Yeah. My gosh! And it happens in so many factories yeah. and so many designers, that, and people just completely oblivious to that happening, or they just don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. the amount of waste. So it's just so amazing that you can be transparent in your brand and you do factor down all of the costs, even according to you know the manufacturing costs and labor costs and material costs and it's so awesome that 
the consumers can see that and yeah. see all the efforts that it go behind creating one particular item so it does increase its value thank you yeah so, so i kind of looked at other design disciplines i was interested in doing something that had more longevity in the, the product yes so i was looking at i um, was interested in photography so i took a, a some courses I at ICP yeah. and then I was looking at furniture design so I did industrial design of course so cool at Pratt. so I was sort of delving into these other areas because I was just craving making something that would transcend Last. time and not be so seasonal and fleeting and you know with all the waste associated absolutely um but then yeah and I was also working consulting to a, a startup um, Denim labels. Yeah, that yeah. as well. There was so there was first I was consulting to a like a luxury men's. It's like a curated box. Every three months they send a parcel. It's kind of at that time where subscription things were yeah, yeah, yeah. big. Um, so we would work with art different designers and artists to to make to collaborate on a product that would then be in this box that you know would be a theme like travel or all these different things and so we were really pushing the boundaries of like customer service and um you know client experience of how people would experience these yeah experiences i suppose yeah definitely <laughs> little packages of goodness yeah so that was kind of really fun and then I was approached by a New York based brand called A Piece Apart to yeah. consult on their denim they were introducing denim into their line so that was that was really fun so I sort of went back into the fashion space and um, you know worked within a team and that was yeah it was just it opened my eyes to what it could be yeah if, if I was to go back operating yeah, yeah absolutely and sort of kick started I guess yeah just the that fire. passion and love for fashion again and design so I'm so glad that you did <laughs> come back yeah and then you moved back to Melbourne and then we moved back to Melbourne decided it was time we'd been away six years and yeah at that time I had two small small children so I wanted to be a bit closer to family and to yeah, nature and you know all Being the home. things that Australia yeah. has to offer definitely <laughs> it's a good place care. Quality yes. of life. Oh my gosh, healthcare. I'm so so grateful for <laughs> yeah. little things like that. And that's the um, absurd thing that I would have read that in Claire Press's book as well about how so many people, like the middle class of people, has been removed now. But so many people are thinking that they're rich because they're able to accumulate so many clothes cheaply, but then they're not paying for things that matter most in life, which is house and healthcare. Yeah. They can't afford those things. So I just wanted to touch on um, the processes that you embarked upon when you relaunched the brand in 2017. How, how did you get that off the ground and what were the things that you needed to set in motion for it to start again? Okay, so we sort of re-evaluated the way that we'd been operating traditionally and decided to improve on every aspect of that process. So we made the big decision to not wholesale at that time mm -hmm. so we were looking at vertically integrated models so we decided to produce everything ourselves yes. rather than um, giving it to another factory to produce mm -hmm. so we started very small we, we um, I was working you know on my own for 
part-time for a year leading up to the relaunch and then um, hired a, a machinist two days a week to help sew the samples. I was yeah. cutting, we were doing it together. And then when we launched, we would make cutting everything to order. Wow. So we'd get an order, we would cut it out, we would sew it, we would ship it. Yeah. Um, and the turnaround was quite, quite good. Um, and then as it grew, we, we decided that we really needed to, to move to a small batch system of manufacturing. So we moved, um, we sort of outgrew our small studio space and so mm-hmm. we moved into a, a, a bigger space. Yeah, definitely. Bought more machinery, um, hired more machinists and, you know, was, was doing it that way. Then just recently we've moved again to a much larger factory space yeah um, we now have a cutter that cuts out three days a week Beautiful. we have a team of about three to four machinists a day um, the first machinist Gemma is now a production manager Amazing. so she oversees the whole production process um, so yeah I guess in terms of manufacturing we really wanted that close relationship of being in the same room with the machinists, having this ongoing dialogue with them about the way, the best way to finish things, the ways that were more efficient, more, you know, that could save time and save save resources. Yeah. So um, cutting so things good. in different ways, um, and just really knowing that everything that had been produced was made by someone who. You know. We know that yeah. their work is valued, they feel respected and that they were empowered. So um, it was a safe, friendly environment for them to be in. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a really important foundation that we wanted to set. And um, then in terms of fabric supplies, we, we researched, you know, the most sustainable suppliers that we could find. Yeah. Uh, we had a bit of an issue with um, our denim suppliers. We just couldn't find um, a denim that was both organic and dyed with a natural indigo pigment. Yeah. So we ended up working with a with a fabric mill to produce our own fabric oh, that was wow. both that had both those qualities. In Australia? No, it's in Pakistan. Okay. So Amazing. we used to work with a denim mill, Brad Mill in Australia, but it's since closed, so there okay. aren't any there isn't anyone currently producing denim in yeah. Australia wow. fabric. So considering we have so many natural resources. Yeah. Astounding. So um so that was yeah, that was really good in and in terms of just also showing that you know, brands want these types of materials to exist yeah. and sort of like, you know, if it wasn't available, then asking the questions, negotiating with quantities and just, you know, convincing them to, to take a chance on, on this and we're hoping other brands follow suit yeah, and um, that we can together sort of create more sustainable fabrics and fibres. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. So good. Last year in New York, um, Rana Plaza happened in Bangladesh, and 1,100 workers were buried alive beneath the concrete layers. 
and at this time the world was brought to the awareness of the dangers of companies outsourcing their production to labourers in third world countries and the abhorrent working conditions that entailed inhumane working hours and unguaranteed personal safety from physical violence threats and exposure to dangerous chemicals and objectionable wages that didn't equate to work that had been completed. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your thought process at this time? Like, I know you said that you didn't know the exact workers who were working, but you were working with factories in New York, not necessarily in Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, what, what was going through your mind at this time? I had already stepped away from the industry at that, at that moment. Yes. And so I think I just had my second child. And so I just had this, you know, such grief for these lives lost and for these, like, families that were devastated Absolutely. by you know, a family member being killed Um, and just, like, horrified that the industry that I had been connected to was responsible for this type of disaster and effect. Um, So I, yeah, I felt, I suppose I felt quite ashamed, you know, for the industry on a whole, Um, relieved in some ways that I wasn't directly associated with it not that I've ever um, manufactured in Bangladesh but just yeah just that uneasiness of of not of sort of hoping for the best sending it to a factory and hoping that everything's above board and you know there's you can sort of ask the questions but there's I feel like now there's a few more steps with like ethical ethical clothing Australia and there's systems in place but at that time I didn't know of any sort of checks or even the ones overseas sometimes they're it could not be totally above board they could be like paid off and it's yeah, just absolutely. a little bit harder to delve deep and actually yeah. understand who's in control of this yeah yeah so I think there was one part of me that felt relieved for stepping away from the industry yes not being part of it but then I suppose after a while it was like, well, I can just, you know, turn away from it, not be involved in it, or I can step back in and try and make change and try and have a positive impact instead of just... Definitely. And it's brands like yourself that are pioneering in sustainable fashion, showing people how to have that transparent, you know, model and how to produce without, you know, damaging anyone's livelihood. And I feel like so many people say, oh, you know, but at least they have an occupation. At least they have some kind of livelihood. But it's not a choice a lot of the time. It's just an oppression or a way yeah. of oppression, which I think a lot of people turn a blind eye to. So, you know, it is, it is these conversations that are coming to light that are really significant. Yeah, and I think if customers and consumers des- demand more, you know, if they have the, the information, I think in the past... Know, there wasn't as much information readily available no. on the internet. There weren't documentaries about no. supply chains or there weren't podcasts or really that much, that many articles even. Yeah, and so absolutely. it wasn't in the public eye. And now that we have all this information, people are starting to you know, be awakened about what's actually going on. Absolutely. And then they can make more informed, better choices Definitely. and then ask questions. And that helps brands to step up and actually yeah you know, it might become the norm yeah. hopefully someday in the future where every single brand has to be transparent and show the steps and and like what you said the consumer the consumer has so much power because they don't buy there's no demand yeah so 
And it's as simple as that, just understanding how much power they actually hold. Yeah. Love it. Do you have any future plans of branching out back into the US or the Chinese market? Is the Chinese market's the biggest market at the moment in yeah. terms of consumer power? Um, they've purchased about 300 million dollars worth of products last year alone so what would be the hurdles for you if you did want to do this or when we when we first relaunched we started off this idea of having a showroom experience yep. experience so before we had our own store we um would have like a take appointments on the weekend and we would um measure up the client take them through the range yep. and um we planned to do that in every state and also in LA and New York. Yep. Which we haven't got to quite yet yep. in the stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but now the, it's changed a little bit. So we have a physical retail store in Melbourne in Fitzroy and Brunswick Street and also Chapel Street. Yeah. We're looking to open one in Sydney Amazing. very shortly as well, which is exciting. Congrats. So at the moment we um, we stock like we ship internationally it's free shipping yep. so we reach those audiences on in our online channel that but we don't have a physical presence there not yet so it's Which, something we're still exploring but we don't have a concrete plan yeah yeah it's quite nice when it just evolves and happens organically anyway but um it's really good that you have that online model of sale do you find that's a much more effective way than wholesale than what you did traditionally before yeah, yeah, I think so. It's it's very different because it's more of a constant stream of yeah. orders rather than just like working towards this big order and a few times a year. Um, yeah, it's absolutely. nice to have that direct relationship with our customer yeah, as definitely. well. So, you know, it's just a more intimate, personal approach, and we can we can talk to them directly instead of going through a third party. Yeah, so. absolutely, and they can build that relationship with you, which is so good. Yeah. And because you do have a few clients overseas, um, is that what influences you to have such a multi-seasonal range? Because you do have quite a few pieces that can be worn in any season. Yeah, we have like a lot of customers that travel for work and, and you know, people from overseas. So we do try and keep each collection quite transseasonal. We'll, yeah. you know, we'll have more coats in winter and have heavier pieces. Yeah. But there's always a few pieces that can just transcend yeah. yeah fluctuate especially with the melbourne climate anyway you don't know what you're gonna get <laughs> exactly <laughs> we're currently sweating at the moment <laughs> whereas queensland it's always yeah. hot they warm don't have big coats hot. no they need it so. yes the persimmon silk skirt would definitely be something <laughs> that you'd be wearing on a regular rotation there oh my gosh that color is beyond divine when um we photographed it for the magazine and how it comes out in the images it's just piercing so it's vibrant. so beautiful <laughs> i was just dying to have you for this the third segment is the core it's kind of the core element of your business um what is the thought process that you embark upon when you design an item does the design come first or the material um and just on a side note here for listeners you don't use any synthetic materials or non-biodegradable products only silk hemp organic cotton wool and bamboo is that right Yes, we do do a few. We do do rayon. Like we also use dead stock fabrics. Yeah. So there's a few blends in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, like occasionally there'll be like a, yeah, nylon. You know. So yeah. we're not, hundred percent 
um, plan to. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of we we have sort of a criteria of assessment for each for fabrics which we um, we look at each fabric and see if they tick the boxes of yes. our values yep. in terms of either dead stock or recycled, biodegradable, so um, things like this. So, yeah, it's sort of a process. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, and also where they're manufactured, like we use a lot of Japanese fabrics because the quality, the sta- environmental standards are much higher yeah. there than other manufacturing places yeah absolutely. so it's, it's quite a complex no definitely issue. and they have beautiful denim there as well um I, I used to work for a company where um they the denim was produced on an island and the one man would come at the end of the night and tweak all the colors so no color was exactly the same wow just i think this, those little tweaks and things where there's imperfections in the fabric is just what makes them so much more special um but back to your question yeah i, su- I suppose i I think I begin each season just becoming very observant around my surroundings. So yes. I'll just start just taking in whatever I'm doing or wherever I'm going, and I'll just sort of like be notice things more yeah. on the streets or in the gallery that I, the exhibition I see or things that just come to me. And then so I'll sort of gather images, you know, of sculpture or different disciplines colors just little sketches that I make yep sort of pull it all together to, to have this sort of feeling sometimes there's a stronger theme running through sometimes it's a, a bit looser and then I usually start by sketching I'll do like a, a lot of sketching yeah just to come up with ideas push um, the ideas around on the page I'll also do draping on the mannequin or like cut up our old sam our old twiles and like reconfigure things. Yeah. And just sort of be quite wide in my exploration and then sort of come back and fine tune things yes. and make sure it's all working harmoniously as a collection. Um well a lot of it is is looking at the previous season and pushing those ideas further into the next iteration in the next season yeah so exactly harnessing all that information that we've gained through fit of a previous style um and bringing that forward into the new collection yeah definitely. adding different details or adding a different design but we sort of our process is quite circular so we'll i'll design something we'll make a sample then we'll test it we'll do user testing so yep. we'll wear the sample see if it's performing well you know if the fit is is good or yeah, it needs some tweaking um so we do that Amazing. and then it goes into we like we cut small batch so we do small batch manufacturing yes so sometimes we'll only even do say as one size range for each of the stores in a style yeah just to test it whether it um, resonates with customers yeah um, whether it's you know the fit is right through the size range yeah then we'll if it if we feel like it's responding well then we'll cut a small production run of yeah that definitely. style and we have like a core collection as well so um, things, yeah oh, trousers. so pieces that um, are sort of seasonless that we'll always have in stock yeah you know it might change our core may change slightly pieces might come in and out but it's um 
just sort of our classic capsule wardrobe, I suppose, yeah. as the foundation of someone's um, wardrobe. Yeah. Uh, and then we have like seasonal pieces that come in, which we'll do in a limited um, yeah, edition. edition of them. So yeah, we're looking at that. I suppose we see it more as limited edition pieces yeah. rather than seasonal pieces that are marked down at the end of the season. Which I think is so much more beneficial because, you know, uh, a lot of the things why fast fashion is so appealing is because people get that FOMO or fear of the moment, Mm -hmm. they want to buy it, they think it's running out when it's not. And then, but it's almost the same effect because it's still something that's, you know, made in smaller doses so people can have, not as many people are wearing it, so it's more unique to, and yeah, it's more of a standout piece and, and you still get that same psychological effect I guess but on a much more ethical yeah yeah and I think that's like maybe where we differ a little bit to some slow fashion brands because we we still really enjoy this creative process of design and creating this ideal of the new piece or the new silhouette and so we don't want to lose we don't want to slow it down to a point of only making really um basic yeah, garments, styles. styles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think our customer also wants to have pieces that are standout pieces. Yeah. Not everyone's going to have that, you yeah, know, exactly. they can wear to events and absolutely. things. Absolutely. And they are anomalous in that regard. They, they do really stand out um, amongst, and I can always tell, oh my God, that's, that's an arms <laughs> <laughs> I, And I, yeah, I'm always like, oh my gosh, I love that. I love what you're <laughs> And I think, yeah, the fact that we we also do um, custom alterations. Mm. So um, we do free alterations and we also do offer free lifetime repairs of all our garments. So wow. that we're really about this idea of creating a long-term relationship with your garments rather than just this fling and yeah. throwing it away. So Absolutely. we want to, you know, we want it to fit you perfectly so that it gets a place in your wardrobe yeah absolutely oh i love that and i noticed that in your store you have a customer feedback form as well um does that help do you keep like a database of like successful styles so that then you can replicate it replicate it again yeah we're just we really want to have this dialogue this constant dialogue with our customers so that we can improve our products and improve our service and yeah. um so good. yeah it's just a nice sort of feedback loop to what we're doing well where we could improve yeah um, and it does feel like such a beautiful community yeah it's wonderful we get like gorgeous emails you know we'll send out a newsletter about um hemp and you know information about that and we'll get this lovely email back from customers saying you know thank you so much i love this i love what you're doing and it's just it makes our day to hear yeah, you know, that person. Yeah, absolutely. After all the hard effort, it's <laughs> nice to be recognised. And it is, they're the customers that matter at the end of the day. So um, so how do you go about with customer orders, things no longer available or um, leftover stock? Because you mentioned that you didn't want things to be losing value previously. Yeah. How, how did you go about it this time when you rebirthed the brand? So we, yeah, making in very small batches allows us not to hold an excess of stock. So yes. we put things into store. When we're running low, we'll, cu- we'll cut another batch and it will go in. Yep. We also have styles available. Like, you know, we're still selling styles that we launched with almost two years ago yeah, and definitely. they're still like 
some of our most popular Popular pieces. So, you know, just like we're approaching this idea of sustainability from all these different angles about really um, questioning why things can't endure if it's a style that's responding. I sort of think about it in terms of furniture design or like, you know, there's a classic chair that, you know, people are still buying 50 years later. (laughs) There's so many like pieces that um, they don't need to be eliminated. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely respond to demand and need and if something might drop off and something else might replace Mm. it totally open to that evolution but just not needing to operate in this really traditional three-month cycle of no absolutely or buying trends because your pieces are iconic anyway to your brand so it just makes sense to to keep making them as well yeah definitely so but in terms of we obviously we you know we do have a few bits and pieces that are left over recently had um, we have like an archive and sample sale once a year, yes, so we do that. I managed to have <laughs> some beautiful little jackets. I couldn't decide between three, so I bought so, all. So yeah, that's a good opportunity just to find a home for pieces that you know maybe were, were part of that um, development cycle in, in terms of samples that you know we might have changed the fit slightly or a style, uh, you know, a season part of the seasonal range that there were just like one size left over and so instead of having that on the rack just somewhere just yeah. you know to save those pieces and then find like a rightful home for them yeah so, absolutely and they're, they're even more unique because this might be even one of the main yeah exactly yeah i, think I really cherish that too <laughs> <laughs> um and how do you go about to eliminate the waste i know we've talked about this um but i i remember seeing one dress where it was made from all the offcuts from um the garment workers um do you, is that something that you would do yeah, again or? there's a few different ways i've been approaching it so there's like a there's a method which is like zero waste pattern cutting which i think that dress yes. maybe was yes. so it's basically yes. about using the whole piece of fabric without yes. cutting, cutting into it, it. Yeah. and it's about um draping and you know, having seams in certain places so that there's shape in the in the garment, but you don't necessarily cut and then throw away little pieces. That's Definitely. One way that we're still we we explore, but it doesn't work with every garment. No, no. To have no. like tailored pieces, you really need to be able to cut into the garment. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, so there's a few different ways. This next season, we're about to release. I've been experimenting with this idea of decorative techniques of using those sort of pieces that would be discarded um in another way so i'm sort of like i've got this sort of curved shape that i've paneled into a skirt and a dress so you know there's little ways like that but on a broader sense we've also we're also looking at ways to utilize our um offcuts so we partnered with a shoe a local shoe brand called Nelson Made. Yes, so we've used our offcuts from our Dawn velvet jumpsuit. Yes, and, and they've woven they've, into the shoe. Yeah, yes. made them into um, slides. So that was really fun to find like a really practical Absolutely. application for it. I love them. Um, I was actually going to wear them for my wedding. <laughs> <laughs> nice. so, yeah, I love the bow. <laughs> so yeah, there's things like that, but in terms of just day to day, small offcuts um 
at the moment we currently donate them to arts organisations, but we're looking for more of a closed loop system where they can be um, recycled into other products yeah, from other again, industries. Yeah, like um, pockets on the inside of pockets or something like that. Yeah. Or, yeah I've seen um, how they've been reintegrated into like housing installations. Yeah, exactly, and things like that, and even mattress, mattress yeah. um, things. So, yeah, yeah, we're still, I guess, finding the perfect place to place them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we do, definitely don't put it straight into the landfill. So, so far you're going above and beyond. So. <laughs> well done for setting the trend. The last segment is called The Future. Okay. Um, so it's all about where you think that fashion might be going or your particular brand as well. What do you believe will bring the huge systemic change needed in the fashion industry? Is it the mentality of consumers? Um, is it the huge organisations restricting their product supplies? Is it education being more targeted at moral ethics and developing an empathetic culture with a deep understanding of our natural environment? Is it governments incorporating policies that restrict fashion brands from employing unethical or unsustainable production processes and coming to terms with the reality of the radical changes needed in the industrial economy um, to protect our planet? Or what, what do you think that needs to change? I think it all needs to change and it needs yeah. to be like a holistic effort. I don't think one thing is going to no. change yeah, everything. It's, it's I think it's not fair putting any blame yeah, or guilt on I think consumers it, or something. It needs yeah. to be really a cooperative process where everyone Definitely. is involved in taking these steps and yeah. taking action. I think it, you know, awareness and transparency is the first step so yes. that people actually know what, what the processes currently are. Yes. You know, they can make informed choices um, I think you know government has a lot of power you know we've just we've seen in terms of banning plastic bags yes. single-use plastic bags in supermarkets and also straws like no, you definitely. know there's been these little things that have made huge impact yeah, and I definitely. think there's definitely a role that government and regulations can hold in this yeah, in, especially in terms of like harmful chemicals that are put into clothing, um, things that, you know, polyester beads that... Yeah, end up in microwaves. Yeah. yeah, things like that I think would be good to have some regulation around. Yeah, definitely. And I think technology, you know, we're, we don't want to rely on it to just save us and people, you know, that's all going to figure things out. But I think technology has a, a role to play yeah. in terms of... Fast way of delivery. Making our processes more sustainable and... Yeah, absolutely. Things, so... Oh, great. I love it. Combination, <laughs> say. <laughs> Cumulative responsibility. I love it. Um, so it's an underlying assumption at the moment um, in our world that our natural resources are bottomless and that the earth will continue to keep giving, whereas we're now kind of at breaking point with our consumerist economy um, and the industrial growth that's continuing. And people are forgetting that nature has an economy as well and the direct relationship between purchasing clothes and the environment. Um, and the fashion industry is, of course, one of the biggest consumers of natural resources in the world. Um, what do you believe will assist consumers to become more conscious shoppers and make the shift away from fast fashion? I think just going back to this, you know, mantra that's, you know, everywhere, but 
I think is really important, just buying less and buy, buy well. Yes. You know, there was a statistic that we now pay a third of what it used to cost, cost to buy a garment, yep. you know, a decade ago or something. But we, we have like two-thirds as many things, used. you know, like or, you know, so many more items of lesser value. Yeah. And I think it's just... Uh, there's you know this huge trend at the moment the Marie Kondo oh my thing, gosh it's which giving me anxiety <laughs> everyone like it's away. yeah I mean I think it's like there's the issue of throwing things away which is a, a you know not a great aspect of it but I think in some ways it's the first step in yes um being more mindful of like what you own and having a relationship with those pieces no, that you own yes. and then when you get something else to see if it actually does give you some kind of pleasure yeah exactly yeah. instead of just mindlessly accumulating things and not knowing what's in the back of your closet no <clears throat> um so i think i'm hoping that people will, will start to you know look at the materials that things are made out of is it going to last? What's the craftsmanship like? You know, is it worth the value to save up for this piece that I'm going to have for, you know, more than a decade rather than to buy this quick thing to wear on the weekend? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and, and I guess repairing, like looking at ways to repair things that you already have. Yeah, mending and alterations, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was speaking to your colleague, Olivia, about this as well, that... Um, you know, after our photo shoot at one of our models, she said that she never felt something so luxurious on her body and it gave her so much confidence. And then we talked about it being the same feelings. I think a lot of people buy into fast fashion because it's that new feeling, that new feeling of, you know, it's new, it's great, I'll put it on and it'll suit everything. But, you know, by wearing something of such high quality, you get that feeling each time, Mm. which is something that people don't understand. That's a really nice way to put it. Yeah, Yeah. it's just, it just, it feels the same as the first time you purchased it and it still gives you that magic it doesn't wear on no no not at all and you can integrate it so seamlessly into your wardrobe and yeah it still gives you that shine (laughs) um so how crucial do you think the role of education in teaching people um but more specifically the younger generation how to purchase sustainably is to make future conscious consumers I think it's really important I think the that sort of age demographic is is experimenting I suppose more with fast fashion which I completely understand it's sort of like you're exploring your identity you're trying new things on that you know what's going to work what's going to fit but and without an awareness of the consequences of that which I think you know at crucial ages it's important to be able to express yourself you know with your clothing and you may not know what suits you perfectly or want to invest in really expensive pieces I remember when when I was that age I would my friends and I would just we'd go to thrift stores and we'd you know buy a whole garbage bag full of clothes that we would you know wear and experiment with rather than buying fast fashion pieces that are brand new that have just you know torn the resources out of the environment to to produce like I think you can still 
Um, Explore your identity. Yeah. Through thrift shopping. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I think that, you know, not everyone can afford designer pieces. No. Um, And not all luxury brands also are sustainable, even if the price tag is in the thousands. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not made in the same factories as the fast fashion pieces. So there's kind of this, you know, I don't think anyone should be shamed for exploring inexpensive no. clothing no, but definitely not. I think if they're educated around the issues then they're going to feel better about themselves in something that was made ethically yeah, and absolutely. made um, sustainably and consciously and that's going to as you sort of said it's going to give them self-esteem to be wearing that and it gives them a little bit more depth rather than just you know yeah, this just... throwaway society and I think yeah the there was that program, The War on Waste, which was quite um, yeah. alarming in terms of this trend of that generation feeling as though if they've been photographed in something, they can't wear it again. I know. And I think, yeah, there needs to be like a a change in that type of thinking. Absolutely. And maybe, you know, these other trends of like 30 wears or 50 wears where yeah, exactly. it's actually you wear that, you use that as... A, something as pride that you've worn it multiple times there's different ways to style it I think styling is a really good way to for um that generation or any generation really to explore fashion without necessarily having to buy a whole bunch of things but if you you can wear things in so many different ways and different accessories so that it almost looks like an entirely different outfit exactly so you don't need to purchase different things yeah if you are looking at the label then it does last and then you can keep altering and using it and you would have found so many goodies as well in in your thrift shop (laughs) finds because you would have been probably create something new out of it yeah it looked fabulous (laughs) and i think yeah if they're you know, there's other fun ways to engage with clothing and fashion, like that idea of the capsule wardrobe, whether mm-hmm. it's 28 pieces or more. And that's sort of like a fun way that if, you know, you're... You, and you're really looking at each garment, if yeah. it serves a purpose in your in your life and in your wardrobe. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think, yeah, just looking at ways rather than just always buying something new just one that's on its own yeah, yeah. And no I, I don't know i i think in my generation it's not i think it maybe it's different from the younger generation but i don't feel like people feel proud to wear fast fashion anymore i don't no. i think you know there's sort of a, the stigma against it now that it's not yeah, it's exactly. not as it's not fun special. to yeah. It's just something it. that can be purchased quickly, and and the fact that it can be just a, attained by anyone and worn by anyone. I mean, I mean, same with any brand. You can wear it in different ways, but yeah, just something that's made without care or the time invested and the creativity invested. Like I'd rather purchase something with a story behind it and, and, and know the fabrics and materials and yeah. you know, that means so much more to me and, and seeing that, you know, special elements that have made that piece come into fruition. That's yeah. that's of more value than it just doesn't quite have the same soul as No. And and it's the same like what you're saying with furniture. It, it, it has that life, it has that place, it has, it means something special to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Um, our very last question is, what do you hope or envision um, the fashion industry will look like in 2050? And what do you hope to achieve with Arnstoff in the years to come? I hope that, you know, this idea of sustainability, I suppose it's a bit of a trend at the moment. I hope that it just becomes the norm and, you know, it's not something that we have to be completely focused on because it just becomes the foundation that everything's built and, yes. um, you know, we no longer use fabrics that are harmful to ourselves or the environment. Yes. And I hope that, yeah, we just are more mindful in, in every step of the supply chain from growing the fabrics to growing the fibres to make the fabrics to all the different processes that a garment goes through yeah, definitely. and that people are more aware of all those processes and all the hands and all the people, all the hours that Collective has things. been spent definitely. on that and that people feel better about. Yeah, I don't, I don't want people to, to feel ashamed for engaging in fashion or for it to become like frivolous because I think, you know, no. there's, there's power in clothing and it can be a really transformative experience Definitely. to wear something and to, you know, feel like yourself or to feel like the version of yourself you're trying to display. But you can't feel empowered by fashion if it's disempowering other people in the supply chain, yeah. you know, especially the most vulnerable people. Absolutely. So I think just, yeah, eliminating that disconnect be really powerful and just the rate of, of consumption needs to slow yeah. in terms of fast fashion. And Absolutely. And Armstrong, where do you foresee it going? What do you We really want to be um, a leader in, in the space in terms of just setting a new agenda of how a fashion brand can operate and do so sustainably and transparently and ethically. So we yeah we want to we want to to have more stores engage with more customers find ways to improve constantly and just keep the conversation going and our role we see is also to educate people about the way things are made and how to make informed choices amazing Oh my gosh, Jay, thank you so much for coming in. Well, well thank you for letting me into your beautiful <laughs> space. Thank you for coming. Hollywood. And yeah, you're truly inspiring in every way, shape or form. Your clothes, your creativity, your imagination. And I really, truly thank you for your time. Thank you. I'm honoured to be on your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, that was so beautiful. Wow, wasn't that an absolute treat? Even as the podcast was being edited, I just felt as invigorated re-listening to her pearls of wisdom as I did the first time I heard them. I really hope that this interview inspires brands to tweak some steps in their own operations or inspire new emerging brands to employ what Jade mentioned has been successful to their business, particularly in running an ethical and sustainable brand. That's the end of our first podcast episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to give us a five-star rating so that we know you dig it and we can go all speed ahead to create a bunch more. 
Critical feedback is always welcome and be sure to tell your friends, not just about the podcast or our online magazine, but just to spread the word about how powerful purchasing sustainably actually is. We will be back next Saturday with our second episode with Lois McGrew-Fraser, designer and creator of a brand Lois Hazel. But if you can't wait, be sure to visit us at www.mossmagazine.com.au or on Instagram at Moss Magazine Official for other sustainable fashion fun. Bye.